0: Hey, how's it going everybody i hope everybody's doing well on the saturday morning at 10 a.m new york time here at montez press radio uh i'm here with tim Lessick and myself tan and this is tnt and thank you for listening and i hope everyone will enjoy this show uh just to make just just a reminder that later tonight uh, montez press is uh, holding a fundraiser at honey's in bushwick uh i think tickets are available still but i'm not sure but uh this is a social distancing event it is outside and we have hot pot so please come if you can't attend uh you can al- always donate uh your donations obviously help shows like us and others uh today's live so thank you to stacy and tom and anna and everybody at Montes press for having us uh thanks for tim for hosting us live and direct in his home um we are also on Instagram, I think, but I'm not sure. Um, anyways, where do you want to start, dude? We need you to do this like crazy intro, so maybe we'll just do that. Do you want to do that intro or
1: sure Then you can do. Your thing. We're operating on on one microphone as well, so we okay. are thankfully we're you know we're good to go here. um so this week, welcome to TNT this week, this month uh this day, what year is it? Uh, this month, for the month of October 2020, we're going to be talking about "A Love Supreme" by John Coltrane. Uh, this album was released in January of 1965, but uh, the first time that I listened to it was October in
0: 2020. Ton, how about you? Uh, I just listened to this yesterday, but uh, let me let me preface this whole conversation and just give everybody a like a rundown. Well, this, uh, John Coltrane, he is a composer, saxophonist. He was at the forefront of jazz alongside Miles Davis and Theolonis Monk. Uh, he's special because he utilizes modes, which are modulations in his playing, as well as contributing to the free jazz movement. Uh, through his improvisations and his unique harmony, Coltrane steered some of his, div- some listeners and himself to the divine realm in hopes of transcending the music we know as jazz. So Today we are discussing jazz, uh, jazz and John Coltrane, mainly John Coltrane. And this album, I love Supreme as Tim said earlier, was released in 1964, 65. Okay. 65. I'm sorry. Maybe it was recorded in 1964. There you go. Um, And we're just gonna dive into this 30 minute album and why it was so influential or why we like it or why we don't like it and try to educate everyone on this phenomenal artist who really was vulnerable and pushed the limits of what music was or is.
1: Definitely. Um, So this, as as Tom mentioned, uh, this album was recorded in uh, <laughs> playing with the audio, live live production. <laughs>
2: um,
1: this album was recorded in December of 1964 uh, in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. New at Jersey, Van Gelder Studio. So just uh, just over the Hudson. Um, one session. This album was recorded in. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. It's kind of remarkable if you think about it. Um, this, uh, this was a quartet uh, featuring, of course, uh, saxophone by John Coltrane, uh, piano by McCoy Tyner, uh, bass by Jimmy Garrison, that's stand-up bass, and drummer Elvin Jones. Um, and it was released on Impulse Records January 1965, one of his best-selling albums and one of his most critically acclaimed. Uh, one people... of the
0: most like critically acclaimed, yeah, of the whole world actually right
1: yeah i like, think one of
0: the best recorded albums ever yeah people call this uh, a <laughs> like, masterpiece
1: time. album yeah. which is is pretty wild um it was composed in coltrane's home uh on long island so john coltrane
0: native new yorker gotta love it <laughs> well actually he was born in north carolina actually but he moved to new york and lived in long island where he wrote this album hmm. um this is three tracks or four tracks four four okay uh on the liner notes there's a site called liner notes online where you could check this out but it says the original release was three tracks yeah and then the mastered versions had very different variations oh yeah so this was like tim said this was the it seemed the catalog number for impulse records impulse records was a big jazz label at the time and released a lot of great people, and this was the 155th release, the catalog was GRP155. Um, I I, I want to say this, this is a highlight for me that I found out about this album that this was an album that peaked his, he wrote this at the peak of his career. This, this is not like a debut album. Usually we do like debut albums and shit like Oftentimes, that. Oftentimes but... we find ourselves doing debut albums. Yeah, but this is not a debut album oh. to all the people who are New to jazz, similar to me, I'm kind of new to jazz. Uh, I I didn't realize, we picked this album last show and I didn't realize this was like the peak album. This was like his senior album, not even his senior album. He recorded-
1: He recorded a few more albums after this. He
0: recorded over 45 studio live albums and studio albums. 45 studio albums and 10 live albums in his whole entire career. That's pretty fucking impressive. And he died at the age of 40. So yeah. let's put
1: this in the context: how just incredibly productive, especially the later part of Coltrane's career was.
0: Yeah, um, this album specifically, what we, what I found out is that he locked himself. He locked himself. He he was living in New York. He was gigging, you know, getting, you know, living the life of a jazz saxophonist, playing gigs with Miles and Thelonious and Monk and whatnot, and he decided to write this album out in his house in long island from the distractions of the chaos of the city and the scene and and whatnot and he locked himself in a room for five days straight and didn't come out yeah so this album was written in five days yeah yeah even though it's only 30 minutes long it's pretty impressive and what i found out is that he right when he wrote it he went straight to the studio and called everybody up and recorded it really yeah Hmm. That's wild. I mean, you
1: know, written five days, recorded in one session with a quartet uh, that doesn't often come together like that. Yeah. Um, you know, one could say that there it was a divine, yeah. uh, and we'll yeah. get some more of that idea later. Uh, divine intervention of sorts to get this done in such a productive and um, synchronistic manner. I think it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, Tonne alluded to John Coltrane playing with Miles Davis and. Um, just to, to touch base on that, uh, Coltrane was literally playing in Miles Davis's band in 1957. But uh, due to his addiction to both drugs and alcohol, specifically heroin, uh, he showed up to a show in 1957, very drunk, uh, dressed as he looked like hell. And by apparently, he took a punch from the trumpeter before getting axed from the band. So <laughs> from there, he basically just like spiraled uh, and out Um, but he came back as Tom mentioned and uh, he he
0: credits it to by the grace of God a spiritual awakening so yeah I it's funny because he was discovered by Miles Davis Um, this is when Miles just had gotten his uh, his Columbia deal or something I forget which label it was but this is when Miles got his big deal and then he scouted all these young talent miles was like a big person on scouting young talent and pushing the the boundaries and john coltrane was one of them he was in his late 20s i think right and yeah he unfortunately during that time of playing with miles he had an addiction that he he couldn't control and and although he was like a great saxophonist and his theory and his idea and approach to music was kind of unique and different miles saw that in him but also sometimes i wouldn't say they didn't get along i heard that like sometimes john coltrane would go on these little rants on his saxophone and would just say i can't stop i can't stop and miles this is obviously third party you yeah, say yeah. but miles would say well fucking take that horn out of your mouth <laughs> and i've I, th- I find that funny because Miles Davis is that type of person that just fucking shoots on the horn all the time. Yeah, so yeah. telling somebody else not to do that is really hilarious. But eventually, yeah, he kind of got kicked out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to speak to, to Coltrane's uh, fervor, I think, um, you know, there were, I heard a story about him practicing in his hotel room so late at night that, you know, people got mad and asked him to turn it down. Um, and so what he did was he just fingered as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to actually playing he was yeah. still like fingering, practicing by fingering uh which is wild and that he that he was
0: even like useful for someone um yeah um i think what makes i i i listened to this album for the first time last night sure. i'm not going to fucking wow well i <laughs> I tried listening to this track like one of the tracks like a week ago but like i only listened to it last night like i said like to yesterday, I, pre- I tried preparing for this by preparing around John Coltrane okay, and the people right. that were around him, yeah. you know, and. So tell us a little bit about who the who the people were around him and what you did. Well, Miles Davis was one of them. Um, He was touring with Miles Davis and working around Miles Davis. He also played with the Elonious Monk and like Sun Ra and stuff like that. And what's crazy is what's interesting about John Coltrane, the saxophone is a tenor instrument, which is a lower sounding instrument. There's also the alto alto sax, which is a higher pitch instrument. And he was a master at both of them because just, um, he's been playing since he was like maybe four or something like that. Um, And what's great is The tenor saxophone is not meant to be played the way he, the way John Coltrane plays it, it's not meant to be played such a high pitch. A tenor sax is not supposed to be played at such a high pitch. Hmm. Um, Because the range of the saxophone is more the lower, which is, I'm a tenor. If I was a singer, I'm a tenor and I was singing, this is the pitch of my voice. But he was playing the saxophone as a tenor saxophone, a low pitch at a higher range soprano right soprano Soprano, Soprano. yeah exactly and people were not doing this he was using the instrument as a as poetry he was using notes and uh rhythms and streams of consciousness into his music Hmm. so this was the this is this was the idea why john coltrane is such a for barrier of free jazz and this jazz movement, what was happening at the moment?
1: It's it's really interesting you say that it um, was kind of free flowing and kind of uh, you know point of consciousness. Um, there's a a quote from um, one of the band members, the the bassist uh, McCoy Tyner. I'm sorry, the, the pianist McCoy Tyner, um, where they're talking about this album, and apparently Coltrane didn't really even talk about it uh, in terms of like what it meant to him or how he came up with it. Um, and Tyner says, we didn't talk about a lot of things. Uh, and Coltrane said to Tyner, I respond to what's around me. Uh, and that's the way it should be. You know, they, they said that they couldn't wait to go to work and it was just a wonderful experience. Uh, they didn't know what they were going to do, but they, re- and they couldn't really explain why things came together so well. Um, but Tyner said it was it meant to be, uh, it's hard to explain things like that
0: yeah this album was uh written like we said at his family home he was very family oriented he was very personal person and it was it was actually in the liner notes i didn't realize this until after i listened to the album that there was a poem that was written or a letter to the divine god or who he calls god to thank him thank the divine for bringing him back and bringing him this album because with his heroin addiction after miles davis he kind of he didn't play he went back to his childhood home and for a long time he could it's it's really sad when this happens to musicians because they get so deep and dark into whatever addiction or whatever they're struggling with and not even what they're passionate about can save them. Hmm. And this is what happened. Like John Coltrane was just in the mix so hard and doing his thing so hard that like this other thing took over him without even knowing. And whenever he was sitting in that room realizing that he couldn't play until he got over his addiction, it probably like, you know, made him realize that I better get my shit back and get the music back and think, yeah. Like promise God that he will preach the message of God through his horn. Hmm. That's interesting. Um,
1: you know, as Ton mentioned, Psalm, the, the fourth movement on the album, uh, is, from what I've researched, a musical setting for an original poem to God written by Coltrane. Uh, and it's printed in the liner notes. Yeah. And apparently, Coltrane plays almost one exact note for each syllable of the poem. And uh, bases his phrasing on the words. So. I
0: I'm, I'm I don't I didn't read too much about like his composition style, or his writing style, or how he creates or whatnot. But I could only imagine that he must have written this. I have I have it I have it here. I I would hope everyone would go online and look at the liner notes and read the liner notes. Um, I'm supposed to read a quote here. I'm gonna read it really close. Oh, (laughs) um, the liner notes is pretty much a letter to God saying what, what God meant means to him. Um, a lot of jazz musicians and specific Coltrane and others were influenced like how jazz I would think came about is from the blues, from the Southern blues and from gospel, Southern gospel, which in turn eventually Started the bebop scene, and, and then now jazz. And this is why this is good that you kind of
1: went around Coltrane because right. you are able to bring some co- some larger context right. like that to this. Right. And, and I, then...
0: I yeah, I knew nothing about jazz. I know nothing about jazz. <laughs> I know I like jazz. Yeah. I know I like the sounds of jazz. I know I like these certain rhythms. But as for like who the big players are, that's not my thing. Like, I, I I'm into classical. <laughs> I'm into no, sorry. I'm into classical. I'm into whatever. But what was happening at during this time with Miles Davis, Steely Monk, and John Coltrane and others, basses, drummers, and whatnot? This was like nighttime music. This was like club music. This was club music of the '50s and '60s. Apparently, when they were recording, they even dimmed the lights in the studio to right. kind of like reflect that club type of atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Let me, we usually go through like first person, like, what do you think? You asked me in this, this album, what, what, what are your first impressions? Um, you know, I, I like Ton. am
1: uh, someone who, who enjoys uh, some jazz. Uh, <laughs> certainly I'm not a scholar by
0: any means. Um, we are not scholars. This is not a show of scholars. This is a show of... PSA, we are not scholars. We <laughs> are <laughs> music Enjoyers, we're just
1: we're just nerds. Yeah. Um, but I will say that this album is is very cool, and I think it sounds a lot different uh, than a lot of than a lot of. Um, sorry, we're just we're making sure the the background music is good to go. Um, it sounds a lot different than other jazz albums that I've listened to, even even stuff like Miles Davis, uh, Lee Morgan. You talk about Art Blakey the jazz messengers. That's all I think related in the genre, but mm-hmm. um, for a saxophone led group, I think it's really interesting because the saxophone really comes through.
0: Yeah, I. What, what's unique also about this album is that it's four tracks, right? Each track is around six, seven, 10 minutes long. And the way he arranged this album was essentially similar to a symphony. Uh, there's four movements. First, second, third, and fourth. Uh, Each movement represents an idea and it represents him as an artist. And also, it brings out the artistry of uh, his his colleagues, right? Through improvisations and whatnot. And the idea of improvising before this time period was non existent. The only time that you would hear about improvisation is through uh, classical music. Hmm. Like there's certain uh, areas of classical music, Western music, Western classical music, I'm sure other types of music that there's improvisations. But what happened, I think what happened was prior to this period of jazz uh, through other classical musicians like pianists and, and whatnot, the composers who were composing classical music kind of stopped teaching improvisation. Hmm. Uh, although like soloists and pianists and violinists were improving at concerts and program concerts, eventually something happened where the theory and the technique of playing got overwhelmed the classical genre, hmm. and there was no progression of that genre of music over in Western Europe. Mm, And then once the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s started coming around, US is on the map. US is on the map because of so many things. Racial injustice, freedom, blah, 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 all that stuff. And what happened is the introduction of drums, Mm. the introduction of the drummer, the introduction of the low kick, the introduction of the pianist playing with the drummer totally changed how people looked at music—it was no more. What do you read? What do you see on the notes? It's—it's hmm. it's not. You look at a sh- piece of sheet music and like, oh, this is what we're playing. It, yeah. It got to the point where I'm just gonna play a variation of this or a version of this, and and I think it just snowballed after that.
1: So would you say it kind of transcended from being very
0: precise to being more emotion or feeling. Based. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that, no, that's no what I've come to learn. Uh, I, I always knew that that's that's what jazz was. But this album, I think, is why it was such a masterpiece. It was bridging the gap between Western music and what is now jazz, Interesting. which I personally think is a continuation of Western classical. Music. OK, yeah, I like this. I like this. <laughs> um,
1: so you know, based on some of the research that I've been doing about this era of jazz, you know, and again, this is 1965. Uh, leading up to this is really kind of when bebop as a, as a genre started as a, as a style of jazz. Um, people like Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker in New York City were some of the first innovators uh, of right. this style of jazz. Um, and it's it's characterized by complex rhythms, uh, deeper, more interesting harmonies and, as Tom mentioned, improvisation. Um, yeah and and it kind heard, of created their own culture in some ways too uh, a lot of slang developed from these this these, these musicians who were um creating this music they wore certain types of clothes they had a lifestyle someone it was a culture yeah someone it was, it was, compared it to modern day hip-hop actually, yeah I,
0: that's that's funny that you say that because like I always when I was listening to this and just thinking about jazz and his Coltrane's contribution to jazz and music in general, I thought like, wow, this is just like Jay-Z freestyling on The Breakfast Club or something, you <laughs> know, like, but this is Coltrane with the saxophone. Yeah. So I just didn't put it together until now, yeah, that's which sure. is really, really cool.
1: And so, you know, as, as you start off with bebop as kind of the, the foundation, which again is a new style of jazz. It's like swing, in the 50s. right?
0: Like early swing, right? Uh, I think
1: I think swing kind of leads, leads of into okay. yeah, leads into it almost. Um, so you know, this this album is characterized as modal jazz, hard bop, and post bop, which were three styles of music that I didn't know existed until doing research for this. Um, so this was
0: dance music. This was a club dance music. This is what you were listening to when if you went out. Still bebop, like, bebop, you mean? Yeah, yeah, bebop. Yeah, this is not like, necessarily well, this the, album. <laughs> yeah, not this album, but like in general, that genre in the 50s. Totally. Was bebop. Totally. That's what would, if you went to Harlem or if you went to wherever, this is the type of music. Can I add to that or do you want to finish? No, no, please. Well, the New York scene, what I've come to learn is was uh, Charlie Parker, Theolonius. Coltrane, Miles Davis, all these guys were hanging out on like 52nd Street, you know, Times Square area, upper Harlem. Yeah. And what I didn't realize during this time is that musicians who wanted to play at a club, specifically black musicians, needed a cabaret license. Oh, you needed a license to play this music if you were a musicians at a club. So what does a cabaret license mean? It's just like a work permit, oh, pretty okay. much, Okay, which was a way to oppress the black community yeah. in joyfully enjoying and making a living uh, upon what they wanted to do, make a living with, Interesting. which is music. Yeah, which is really Kind of crazy because with that hurdle, even with that hurdle, there's so many great musicians that came out. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, yeah.
1: just the sheer amount of. Different artists playing and, and further I mean, developing this type of, of music um, and spawning different styles, you know, if if jazz was the, the foundation and bebop is a different version of jazz, then you have all these other types where You know, it's just further and further progression of the genre, Um, you know, based on improvisation, based on soloing, uh, based on kind of this this lifestyle that, uh, you know, all these guys are living.
0: So it's really interesting. It was a lifestyle. Jazz was a lifestyle. Jazz was the moment. Jazz was, jazz is, I wouldn't say was, is, is the moment, is what you're doing right now. It's not what happened, what's going to happen. It's this is why we're here right now
1: absolutely and with that let's let's listen to a little bit of (laughs) one of these tracks so you can get a sense of what we're talking about here's uh some of acknowledgement the first track on a love supreme
2: Mm
1: Hey, welcome back to TNT. Hope you enjoyed hearing some of Acknowledgement by uh, John Coltrane. First track on I Love Supreme should mention that is the live version of this song. Uh, This album was only ever played once live in Paris of all places. Um, And so this is a little bit what you're hearing uh, that live performance is included on the remaster of this album. So, you know, you probably heard the saxophone doing all kinds of shit (laughs) during, and especially the live version. Um, So, Tan, can you give us a little bit of a a musician's perspective on this? I'll
0: try to explain. So obviously jazz, we know jazz. We obviously know jazz is a a genre of music that utilizes improvisation. So obviously we understand that like in a song, a structure of a song is a key, which chooses what notes to play in that key, which is like the family of notes that make it all go together. But what's interesting about jazz is that the key, there's no center. There's no tonal like say we're in the key of C, you could play C D E F G A B C. That that's in the key of C. But in modal jazz, you're switching keys, you're modulating. You're modulating from uh, C, okay. yeah. Modes are just so c major to a minor that's a mode a is a mode of c which is major is happy minor sad and what's happening is that you can build harmony which are three notes stacked on top of each other in jazz they're fifths stacked on top of each other like um, but what's happening is during this age uh during this time the saxophone necessarily is more of like more mimicking the voice of a human so you can't really play three notes at a time you can't play you can't sing three notes at a time let's just say that so how you get around that is you play three consecutive notes Mm. which those three consecutive notes are a chord so usually whenever you're playing harmony or playing guitar you'll play like a chord and then you sing a melody over on top of that chord okay But what John Coltrane and a lot of other people were experimenting with was playing this chord, not in a stacked one, but playing it in consecutive runs. So what you're hearing is you're hearing modulations of chords uh, consecutively played one after the other. I don't know if that makes sense. No, 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 totally. I mean, that's
1: probably one of the... Uh, clearer descriptions of her because <laughs> it, it's funny, you know. Uh, Alan and I were listening to this yesterday, and she she asked me, you know, what are the characteristics musically of, yeah. of jazz? And of course, you know,
0: you could say improvisation and those types of things. But technically, I had no idea what is yeah what is <laughs> improvisation. Right. So it's improvisation is obviously like you think of a rapper and he's freestyling. Obviously, he has some words in his bag that he can pull out. But really, these are notes that are coming as a stream of consciousness, after a lot of study and a lot of practice, like you said earlier, he would practice until he fell asleep with his horn on his chest, you know? So what John Coltrane was doing, he would say, he would would express like, there are so many chords, there's so many combination of chords and so many combination of of harmony that can go over melody that the reason why his sporadic consecutive notes was happening is because he was trying to fit as many consecutive chords in a row within a measure or within a time frame or within a beat or whatever (laughs) because it was just a moment that was just a moment and it's like how far can you push the rhythm and how far can you push the harmony of it and what's what's funny what's great about jazz is it's It's a reflection of what society was happening at the time. The inequality was happening at the time. Uh, Classical Western music was a very hierarchical style of music. Uh, You needed to do this, to do this, to do this, to get to this point. Whereas jazz, not even talking about free jazz, is jazz in general was connecting notes never heard before to other notes. That they did, people didn't know existed that right. you could do. Yeah. So they were breaking a lot of rules by saying that I could go from note A to note B in whatever way I want. Right. And right. that's what they were saying. Hmm. They were allowing themselves freedom through the music.
1: And it, you know, taking place in 1965, obviously a uh, pivotal year for civil rights, and uh, you know, it's long documented the overlaps between. Uh, jazz especially this more modern style of jazz and bebop uh, and the struggle for civil rights so it's you know interesting time for all of this to
0: coalesce I yeah think. so the next time you get a chance to listen to somebody improv or whatnot it's it's not only a vertical way of listening to music layered on like two layers like melody on top harmony on the bottom it's Melody on top and harmony on the bottom, but also harmony left to right. Hmm. It's like reading a book up and down and left to right. It's like almost like almost like a Japanese manga. Hmm. That's wow. how I would imagine it. Wow, this is a real <laughs> this is a this real is why, revelation for me. This is men. why this is why I never wanted to get into jazz because it just gets really heavy and deep <laughs> and I don't understand why it does and like it was just too heavy and deep until now. So. <laughs> But that's just what, if you're the first time listener of jazz, similar to me, that's that's what you're listening to. You're listening to the stream of consciousness of an artist speaking to their audience through a stream of consciousness, it's even it. with wrong notes. There's no wrong notes in jazz. That's the great
1: thing. I, I love that. <laughs> uh, and I think a quote that kind of helps to to put a pin in, in this music theory conversation piece of this is it's about Coltrane himself. Um, The quote is, as a band leader and composer in his own right, he pushed the limits of harmony and embraced static harmony. He helped pioneer modal jazz and free jazz and often shocked and challenged his listeners. But he didn't do this as art for art's sake, for entertainment value, nor to be provocative. It was because he was compelled to push boundaries, uh, search for something new and seek the truth.
0: Yeah, he was compelled to seek the unknown. He was just like, it's funny because I think I overheard in an interview or something that like a drummer asks him, what are you doing? What am, How do I play with you or whatever? And John Coltrane says something to the extent like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> He's just pushing the boundary, which is kind of like a smart, but funny answer because like, yeah, you don't know what you're doing, but you're the greatest saxophonist alive, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but that's the beauty of it in a sense, because like you're exploring the unknown territory, which is so
1: vulnerable. Absolutely. Um, and there's a there's a quote from Iggy Pop actually that that it feels right to say now uh Iggy Pop is talking about John Coltrane and he says what I heard John Coltrane do with this horn I tried to do physically uh the simplicity of the compositions was encouraging to me because I did not have more than an extremely rudimentary sense of chords and strong stu- structure so you know you can already hear you know, Iggy pop is, is not related to jazz at all. Uh, so yeah. you can already hear like the legacy of, of Coltrane and not only this album in particular, but his style and the boundaries he was pushing.
0: Yeah, that's the why. That's the why John Coltrane exists. The how is through repetitive practice. Right. Repetitive playing with Miles, repetitive playing at the nightclubs, repetitive playing of with monk, and just testing things out. You know, every time they were on stage they were practicing and they were exploring the music but they're also exploring their own physicality of the music within the music and how far they could take their physical body to express whatever it is that they were trying to express which is kind of wild which is makes sense yeah absolutely i don't know yeah um where can we go next after this? Well, I think
1: we, you know, we could talk a little bit about, uh, just to touch briefly on the production of this album. Yeah. Um, produced by a gentleman named Bob Thiel, uh, who also took the cover photo, fun fact. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mr. Thiel was born in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, just just south of where we are now. Um, and eventually took over Impulse Records uh, in 1961. Um, so Thiel uh, really... You know, he and John Coltrane were were kind of hand in hand throughout this time. But Thiel also recorded uh Mingus, uh Dizzy Gillespie, Sonny Rollins, Archie Shepp, Albert Ayler, among others. Um however his most successful song was Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World, which he co-wrote. Um wow. so Bob Thiel, pretty heavy hitter in the jazz. Yeah.
0: I think he's still alive, I think. Is it Yeah, I think his studio's still going. So I, I found out that um also the studio that the Inglewood studio that was recorded on this album the architect of that album or the architect of that studio was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. Really? Yeah. Huh. That feels strange. Right. Yeah, which is kind of crazy. That. Huh. Um, and initially this that's the studio, yeah, but prior before recording this in the studio uh, Rudy Van Gelder was the engineer. Um he recorded Miles and everybody in the living room of his parents' room in really? New Jersey. Yeah, <laughs> is that crazy? I love that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's nuts. That's really funny. Um, it's funny. I just just gonna throw this in there for now. It's funny because jazz is what we're talking about. Jazz. We're talking about also the foundation of a lot of popular music. Yeah even like electronic music mm-hmm. like miles Davis was definitely through his improvisations and probably coltrane too throughout i haven't listened to all of his stuff but we're probably exploring new styles of music without even realizing it because hmm. i was listening to this is off topic but i was listening to the monk okay. and his tones i would highly suggest that artist as well and the sounds that were coming out of the piano sounded like german techno to me yeah, yeah. well it was crazy fascinating yeah it's it's really interesting so
1: yeah it's almost a next i mean you know not that it's electronic not that that not that electronic music came from jazz but the further progression of exactly the style of the mindset of improvisation of yeah.
0: uh you know lay, the, the complex nature of, of yeah the and also this play on dissonance mm, you know this this because like you got to think like classical back in the day were about Perfection, Coco, perfection. Yeah. You know, but now today, people are trying to explore dissonance and out of tuneness When I talk about dissonance, I talk about how things are out of tune. But that's a whole nother theory show that I, <laughs> stay, stay tuned for our sister yeah, show, exactly. uh, Music Theory of
1: the Top. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question for you yeah. about this album specifically. Uh, do you think that this album is made for an audience? or do you think it's made for either Coltrane himself or just musicians generally?
0: I think it was all of those. I think it was I think it was the only way for Coltrane to express his gratitude for his life. Hmm. So it's something that he had to do. Interesting. It's something that it would have happened either way in some way or form, whether it's big or not, this album whether it was critically acclaimed or he thought, I don't think he, he was writing to be like, oh, this is going to be the fucking album. I think <laughs> I think he was writing this to save himself. Interesting. I like to, that answer. To a milestone to like mark his life that he had understood why his existence was. Yeah. 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 It was like this
1: manifestation of, exactly. a, of a feeling that he yeah, had. Yeah, like, exactly. In four parts. It was a
0: duty almost. Right? That's interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, listen to this yesterday. Um, and I definitely encourage people to both listen to the album as recorded and then listen to the live version mm. uh, played in France. Um,
0: the live versions are totally different.
1: Yeah, it is. It is still the same album, but it is very different. They're
0: very, they're variations. They call this variations in the music culture, Okay, I guess. So yeah. you're, you, what's funny is like uh, that song, My Favorite Things, mm-hmm. uh, these are a few of my favorites that was the song that is essentially john coltrane <laughs> from a certain period i don't know when he started but that is the the song that he made variations of that he played for the rest of his life no shit yeah oh. at every concert because but That's every about, time he would play that song it's like. totally different right, right yeah
1: i mean that makes sense just given Kind of what we've learned about coltrane and, and his dedication to the music and to to improvisation as well yeah that's interesting because uh, a
0: song is not just one song it's mm-hmm. an interpretation of many different songs mm-hmm. and it also like him doing his own interpretations built on top of that interpretation <laughs> it's just like a lot of meta shit <laughs> that they were doing without even realizing it it's just like ah
1: i love it i love it <laughs> yeah i mean um you know, this, as we mentioned before, this album's only played live once. Um, yeah, Coltrane actually to hear
0: it once, yeah. Coltrane
1: actually died two years after this album was released um, from liver disease, mm-hmm. I believe, which uh, stems mm-hmm. from his years of drug and alcohol abuse. Um, so, in, you know, in some ways, he didn't he didn't know exactly when his life is going to be over but as, as Tom mentioned you know he felt compelled to do this or compelled I, to produce this i think album. it's
0: funny because like i didn't realize that it was two years after but it just seems like every musician or any sort of masterwork somebody does they like they did their job and they're like out <laughs> you know what i'm saying <laughs> like god like sent a message and was like hey you got to do this and then take you out of here <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not my, uh, spirituality is not my, my forte, but so, you know, and I had no idea kind of coming into this, how tied
0: to uh, Coltrane's faith that this yeah, was. Yeah, you, you want to know a fun fact? I do. Should I do? I'd love, I to, say know, this I love is, to know a fun fact. Okay, friends. we're talking about a lot about like divinity and God and religion and whatnot, and, and a lot of musicians are influenced by that. But what's so funny about this is that Coltrane, I think, did transcend jazz and transcend life, and he left a legacy that is far beyond what we can understand because what I found out is in San Francisco there is a church that is dedicated to St. John Coltrane. Saint
1: (laughs) Saint John William Coltrane, African Orthodox Church in San Francisco.
0: Yeah, it was crazy because the the head reverend or priest or whatever you want to call it plays the saxophone and plays (laughs) his music and preaches the gospel of Coltrane through Coltrane. Amazing. Which is... They hold jam sessions
1: every Sunday. that are five-hour jam sessions interspersed with liturgy, sermons, and fellowship. And their mission is to paint the globe with a message of a love supreme and in doing so, promote global unity, peace on earth, and knowledge of the one true living God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, yes, they worship him as a saint. Yeah. Also, Partially as a god as well, but I think it was a vehicle. John Coltrane was a vehicle for his disciples to gain love and respect, or whatever. Yeah, in their you lives. know, it's a, it's amazing. You
1: know, you, I feel like, especially in jazz, people. I think people who are, are really into jazz like view it as like you know, uh, Monk was truly like a monk. You know, yeah. and, and you know, uh, you know, Miles Davis was like a, a saint in some ways, and so this this dedication that people who are really into jazz have to the genre is interesting that it's like reflected in a physical church and <laughs> as yeah. far as like how these people are, are, you know, relate to Coltrane and relate to his message. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah,
0: one last word before we do the last bit of it. it uh, this, the reason why we're talking about jazz at the moment is we're 55 years to, you know, since this genre has emerged and we're kind of reflecting what's happened again now during this time. So I think partially for me personally is to learn what's happened during that time so that we can take what we learned from that time through the music, through whatever that's happened during that time and try not to repeat those or try to make it better or try to educate others about it. So I think here in the next year or so, you'll you'll hear a lot about the 60s, you'll hear a lot about the 70s, you hear about civil rights and stuff because we're back at that oh yeah <laughs> but yeah in a, okay. in a huge way yeah yeah so <laughs> um
1: you know just to, to touch on a couple of reviews of this album um pretty much across the board this gets stellar reviews uh even from the uh cynical fucks at pitchfork <laughs> um you know <laughs> they often have a pretentious take but they uh, they love this album uh, in fact they say uh, Love Supreme sounds like nothing else sounds like nothing else in Coltrane's photography and indeed like nothing else in recorded jazz sitting at the nexus of so many competing musical ideas
2: Whoa. Yeah, pretty,
1: pretty on point I will say uh, you know we don't do this very often but I found a negative review of this okay, album yeah, no, from 1965 yeah. uh, from a publication called The Guardian Um, so they say there's a natural limit to the intensity, which with which a musician may convey an an idea. And John Coltrane seems to have, seems to have overstepped it. He has conceived the idea of devotional modern jazz, which on its own terms is as intense as a form as there is, but his execution of the idea is earnest to the point of being harrowing. (laughs) Wow. Tough stuff from the Guardian. Yeah,
0: man. (laughs) I think these are people who they had never heard this before. Yeah. Yeah. They just pretty British uh uptight ideals. Yeah. They just had never heard anything like this before and what's great is like people like John Coltrane, and Miles Davis just you know, fuck. they're just like fuck you. I mean, yeah, not at all. It's yeah. great. <laughs> and they're just doing them and that's what's st- and that's what I think everybody seeks to be is just to be themselves. And that's why I admire these guys.
1: I love that what a, what a beautiful what a beautiful <laughs> note to start to go out on I love it thank you for that um, anything else you want to say before we, before we wrap I, it I just up wanna say another just,
0: song I'm just going to do a really quick context of like where we were at of the political landscape oh, yeah. during that time uh, LBJ was president Vietnam War was going crazy uh, The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was established um, let's see what else uh, Bobby Kennedy was just The U.S. attorney at the time was just nominated as a Democratic presidential nominee. Um, Gas was, Gas was, or Loaf of Bread was at (laughs) $0.21. And the British invasion was happening with music. Beatles, Rolling Stone. Big times, just on the charts. Yeah. uh, Jack Ruby, who shot Lee Harvey Oswald, was convicted a year after. (laughs) Um, And Raw Dolls, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was written during this time. Uh, Muhammad Ali was in Nigeria fighting. Uh, What else? The Olympics were in Tokyo. Oh, yeah. And um, and the high speed rail in Japan was happening. There was a lot of other civil war in like Turkey and Croatia or Cyprus Hmm. and whatnot. Um, But this was a hot year.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, as as Tom mentioned, uh, the British Invasion, mostly the charts were dominated by the British Invasion or by like Mary Poppins soundtrack. Uh, You know, still very uh, popular music was still leaning towards that very um, wholesome kind of sound. Yeah. Um, But there's, you know, there's really no jazz in the top 10 singles or albums uh, throughout. 1965 but um yeah you know, was, I would argue that the legacy here is far greater than uh you know
0: and some of these bands that are on the top you know yeah <laughs> this this was new york dance music this was like this is like going to the den in like east bushwick for some crazy techno <laughs> rave but you're actually going to harlem to see coltrane play Just
1: smoke cigarettes and, yeah, and listen to and, jazz yeah <laughs> i love it right, cool. um, so let's We'll play uh, one more song on the way out. Um, but before we end, please uh, do check out the Montez Press fundraiser this evening. Um, go to their honey's. website for more details at Honey's. Uh, thank you to Stacey and Thomas and Anna for having us as always. And uh, hey, gang, there's something going on on Tuesday. Uh, November 3rd. It's the election. All oh, right, Please, for the love of uh, Saint John Coltrane, <laughs> go out and vote. Don't sit this one out. Don't be an asshole. Take a stance. Make a difference. And please go out and vote. Awesome. And with that, we'll play a little bit of uh, Psalm, the last track, and I love Supreme on the way out.